it falls apart really easily, so I don't want it to fall down. And Good morning. There's this uh, story told about a white stallion. An old man owned this white stallion, and he was the poorest man in the village. Absolutely the poorest man in the village. But he owned this beautiful white stallion, and the, the king of the kingdom over that village had offered him a fortune to have this white stallion. After a terribly harsh winter where his family almost died, the townspeople came to him and said, this is ridiculous. You should sell this thing. You can hardly afford to to feed your family. Sell it and you'll be rich. If you don't, you're a fool. And he said, it's too early to tell. A few weeks later, the man woke up and the white stallion had left. It had run away. And the townspeople came to him and said, See, if you just sold your horse, now you have nothing. You're such a fool. It's too early to tell, said the old man. Two weeks after that, the white stallion returned along with 11 other white stallions. Old man, the townspeople said, we were the fools. Now you can sell a stallion or all 11 or 12 of them. You are so smart. It's too early to tell, said the old man. The following week, the old man's son, his only son, was breaking one of the horses in and fell off and broke both of his legs. And the townspeople came to him and said, old man, if you had just sold all the stallions, you would be rich, and this would not have happened to your son. You're a fool. It's too early to tell, said the old man. The next month, war broke out with the neighboring village, and all the healthy sons had to go to war. And the townspeople came to him, and they cried to the old man and said, Our sons are gone. We do not know if they will return. You were wise. It's too early to tell, said the old man. I think this scripture has something to do with that story. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Depending where we stop on our story, it's just too early to tell. This is a very famous verse, my my wife's favorite. Uh, It's one, though, that is often, never by my wife, misapplied or misread or misunderstood. So we're going to give to ourselves to each phrase pretty clearly, pretty extensively, and most of the words in this so that we can attend to it well. But first I want to show you a clip. It's a longer clip. And, um, and I want you to disregard their day jobs in some degree because it's Stephen Colbert and, um, and it's um, Anderson Cooper. And uh, if, you're really con- if you're really liberal, I don't want you to feel smug because I'm using these two guys. And if you're really conservative, don't feel judgmental and suspicious, all right? These are two men who are talking about grief. I don't know if you know this, but Colbert's father and brothers died in a uh, plane crash early on in his life. And recently, um, Anderson Cooper's lost his mom. So resist any smugness or judgment. Colbert, and also too much judgment about all their theology, Colbert is a comedian. Cooper is a journalist. They are not theologians. But I want you to see these men grieving. There are parts of it that I would adjust. There's a part about proselytizing. There's a part about, um, uh, about being fully human. But that's not the point. I want you to give yourself to watch these men. One, 
who claims Jesus as his Lord and Savior and God. And the other is a child of New York aristocracy who's trying to figure out death in the world.
That's good. That's good. I figured the comedic break was important. Did you notice, though, how seriously when he said, God does it too, how uncomfortable that moment was and how it had to go to the joke? And then he went back. R.C. Sproul, who's kind of um, a Presbyterian pope for about 25 years, says this. This is one of the most comforting texts in all of Scripture. It assures the believer that all tragedies are ultimately blessings. So Tolkien and Sproul agree here. So let's go through, starting first with the knowing. We know. I love this little phrase because there are just so many things that we don't know. Even God himself is only by his mercy, revealing something of himself, still keeps things hidden. We don't know, know God, other than in his kindness to reveal it. He will be mysteriously in being known forever. Don't you remember last week where, where Paul says that we don't even know how to pray, right? That we don't even groan prayers, right? Like, we don't even groan well, and that we need the Spirit to come in this beautifully humble and, um, and uh, mysterious way that, that the Spirit comes alongside us and groans prayers and prays them outright, translating them in his love. But this is something we can know and that we do know. We can rest our weary heads. We can flop down on this bed of, bed of truth that God was working things for good. Now, the Stoic philosophers of the day uh, believed that everything would work out for good or for the best. So this would not have been a foreign thought in Rome, especially when we, as we've talked about earlier, there was a good chunk of the converts of Rome that were part of the Stoic philosophers' uh, rank. The Stoic believed that from God's vantage point, everything would work out together for good for God. In fact, the universe ends with just God, and no one else in the Stoke philosophy. So Paul's doing something a little bit different here. He is less universalizing it in one sense. He's putting some limits on it, but then he's adding people into the mix as well. And that's where we go to the knowers. The verse doesn't say all things work together for good for everyone. It just doesn't. There are limits to it, and he uses a strange phrase for Paul here, he says, we know that those who love God, and if you translate it most woodenly, it would be literally the God lovers. Paul applies this truth, this knowledge, to people who love God and are called according to his purposes. Those are the caveats he gives. Now, God lovers is simply shorthand for uh, a way of describing people who have come to Jesus, who have bent the knee to him, as Lord and collapsed upon him for the forgiveness of our sin and pardon for our rebellion, who've submitted to the reign of grace, we're talking Romans language here, the reign of grace and love and repented, again, Romans language here, the, from the allegiance of sin and evil that we have converted and kept or covered and kept. And yet it's an odd and intimate term for Paul to use because he usually talks about God loving us, not about us loving God. That's his normal way of doing it. So there's a sweetness to this knowledge, one born of 
out of love and purpose. So just like groaning was something that was fundamentally Christian in the previous passage, there's a Christian groan, then this is a distinctively Christian knowledge. And so I need you to hear me, both Christian and non, and I want to honor the scripture here even though I'm not particularly fond of this part. Whatever follows from this verse about things working together for good, whatever follows about purpose, or even knowledge about God working in the world, it is not a universal principle. It is for the one called the God lover. There is no promise for those who do not. All the hope in this verse is nullified by rejecting the reign of the lo- love and the, the reign, love, and work of Messiah. So if one wants to reign over themselves, there is no good news here. But for the one who will have Jesus' reign of mercy and grace, there is only hope for you here. Now here is the trick. There is such a beauty to the reign of Jesus that it's retroactive. It undoes, which would have not necessarily been good, and makes it good. It's the, the eternal God is probably illegal, but he backdates his checks. When you come to him. And so the promises don't just take care of the future, they take care of the back as well. And so both for the Christian and the non-Christian, our solution is the same collapse upon the glorious, gracious reign of Jesus, the one who forgives our sins and frees us to live truly. You may look at it this way. It's, this is not a promise for everyone, but it is a promise for anyone who will bend their knee to Jesus. So, what is the promise for? It's for anybody who'd bend the knee to Jesus that we would know that all things work together. The beauty of that quote that, that, that Colbert shares from Tolkien, what, what punishments of God are not gifts? Now, It's poetic language for sure, and it should make you a little uncomfortable, as good poetry does. And you could probably get something more precise there if you put punishment quotes or something like that. But I find that actually the poetry of of suffering is um, somehow more precise by not being precise, that it gets your heart in a different way. I think Ruth and Naomi would agree. I know the prophet uh, Hosea would. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. That's poetic, tough language, but it's to evoke in something really beautiful and right. The tearing of God, even in Christ, is for our healing. And I think our sister Esther would agree about such a thing. Now, if you are uh, one who doesn't have a Bible and you don't know who I'm talking about here, the book of Ruth and the book of Esther are in that little black book that's under there, and you can have that Bible that's right there if you don't have it. Um, and, uh, and they're named those things, and they're great stories. You just read them, keep the book, whatever. And then halfway through the first book of the Bible, Genesis, is a story about Joseph. And here's how the story ends for Joseph. As for you, he's talking to his brothers who sold him, uh, sold him, and, uh, was sold him for death, for dead, or as a slave. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Even you ran, 
you terrible people who brought me here, I'm talking to you right now, that's not in the Bible, but, you know, your own brothers you're staring at. And Paul certainly experiences the Bible and the whole story of redemption this way, with shipwrecks and imprisonment. The scripture kind of, it's, this is kind of its shtick. This is kind of its story, is, is that, that, that there's this incredible belief that all the wheels of God's providence work together for the good of his people. He overrules even bad for good. For good. There are two ways to kind of mess up this language of good, the reading of good here. The first way to do that is to pretend like all things are good. That would be a misreading of the scripture. You saw what Colbert was doing. He's like, no, I wish it never did happen. I wish it didn't happen at all. Paul does not say all things are intrinsically good in any way, shape, or form. Instead, he's saying the most agonizing sufferings will be turned to the believer's good by God. R.C. Sproul says, It does not declare that all things that happen are good in themselves, but that in all the things that happen to us, God is working in and through them for our good. There's another way to mess this thing up here, though. It is to talk about good as if the way we perceived good was good. That God promises to work out all things to your satisfaction. That is not the promise. In fact, it's really far from the truth of that promise. Most of us have probably heard or maybe even said ourselves, I, I cringe to think I might have, yes, you may have lost your job, but that just means God's got a better job for you. That is not what this passage is. This is not, you can't go, and Roman, so Romans 8.28 says, He may have a better job for you. He may have a worse job for you. He does have a job that will, he may not even have a job for you. But he will work good. Don't worry, your fiance breaking off your engagement because God has another person for you. Romans 8, 20, no it doesn't. It just doesn't. We must take the good from God's perspective and take it in the terms of the scripture themselves. It can be material blessing. We're not afraid to receive material blessing from God. He is kind beyond measure. Sometimes it's physical healing. But what the scripture is talking about here comes in the next verse, and we'll talk about it next week for sure. I know this may not satisfy you, and some days it doesn't either for me, but it is to be conformed to the image of his son. That is the good he promises here. Now some days, when you just want a better job, being conformed to the image of the Son may not motivate you like you think it should. But it is true and it is your highest good. It is the most beautiful thing to be like the beloved. And it is actually the most encouraging thing for us to be like. And sometimes we forget to cherish it, but it is True. J.C. Ryle says, we forget that every cross we bear is a message from God intended to do us good in the end. Trials are intended to wean us from the world and have us walk towards the Lord. So Christians, don't you give yourselves or any non-Christians around here, uh, don't in any way dupe them thinking that, that Christianity or coming to Christ means that you are now suffer free. That is a lie. Don't interpret good as God's eliminating troubles of health, wealth, relationships, boss. He will do that, not now and not on your terms. 
And he does do these th- things sometimes, but the good work is that hidden work he does in us. Look, I have no idea why, when we moved here, the church was incredibly gracious. They gave us 18 months to help us with our two houses that we owned at the time. And then it was the second year, so another six months before we sold it. I was not experiencing this trial as something that was like, uh, oh, I can, this is awesome. No, I was like, Jesus, you've abandoned me. I'm a baby who's crying out that I can't see God anymore, and I don't think he's getting me diapers. You know, I was like, dear Jesus, have you not taken a a Dave Ramsey course? This is not how you're supposed to spend your money. But he doesn't promise that it'll be easy. He promises he'll make good on it. And I will tell you this, the Lord knitted Amanda and I together in that way, in tears at times, in reliance upon Jesus, in a way that was a gift. Gift I didn't really want, but it was a gift. So we end to this last phrase, for those who are, according, who are called according to his purpose. And if you notice here that there's been a lot of passive voice, you English majors out here, there are two or three passive statements. And when a statement doesn't have a clear subject, that's called passive voice. But when that subject is clearly God, what grammarians call that is a divine passive. A divine passive. Now, God's not passive in this. It's just grammatically passive. In fact, God, has, the Father, has sent his Son to make us sons and daughters and does so by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's what has been leading up all the way through eight, right? So though it's not grammatically clear what God is doing, it is clear that he's doing and taking action. That this tremendous, powerful, gracious action in the world is so unlike the Stoics who have God passively absorbing everything. The Christian story, the biblical narrative, shows God vigorous and, and, and energetic in an engagement of the world from the get And he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so we move from a divine passive to the divine purpose that he has in us or works out with us. Now please hear me. Because God has a purpose doesn't mean you get an explanation. Sometimes when bad things happen, we do this little hand move that says, well, God has his reasons. Or there's a reason for everything. Or that thing works out for the best. And I think it's a cowardice move most of the time. And I think it's a way to try to pretend like you don't really care about the explanation, that you don't really care about some of those things. It's a way to dampen things down, tampen things down, tamp things down. This verse doesn't really address that. But here's what's not being said. Well, here's what's being said. It is working according to his purpose. And that doesn't explain. It just gives hope and confidence that amid suffering, that it's not chaotic or irredeemable. That's what it's doing. That doesn't mean it explains it. Y'all, there is too much cancer in this church for me to look at you and explain any of it. It is ravaging the bodies of many people in our congregation right now. Or the stray bullet that hit Alberto Navarrete in in July of this year, the five-year-old boy. There's no explaining that. The tragic deaths and suffering in our church, 
No, but there, there is a promise that God, because all of those people have called on the name of the Lord, that there will be purpose in it, and it will be made right. It will be made good. God promises to bring about good for his people amid these horrible situations, and that is where we take the great comfort in. Not because we figured out or explained it in our own heads. Purpose is not explanation. Don't come to Jesus thinking you are owed an explanation, but run to him knowing that you are given his assurance of his power and his purpose to accomplish. Y'all, explanation looks at the isolated events. Purpose looks at the arc of God's transforming grace. Explanation is fixated on the alleviation of pain and circumstances. Purpose looks at the inbreaking of the kingdom of life of God and is looking for its life anywhere. Explanation hangs on the event and, and, and just waits for it to be done. Purpose hangs on the goodness of God who is at work in all of it. And there is, because God uses sin so amazingly well, there is purpose in every nook and cranny of your life. When you understand the scriptures as we kind of run through a couple passages earlier, it feels like the whole Bible is proof of this verse. That from the forbidden fruit to the second coming, God has been actively making good out of bad, actively achieving his purposes in us despite all hell breaking loose in the world and in our hearts. It just seems kind of like how he does things. He uses these kinds of things to do good for his purpose. What's the greatest injustice in the world? What was the greatest injustice in the world? The trial, torture, shaming, and death of the only innocent human being that ever existed. That was the greatest injustice in the world. And not only was he just the greatest human being, he was the very creator of the people who were destroying him. That our rage and rebellion and sin would lash him literally and hammer metal into his wrists and feet, that is the worst thing of all things that ever has happened. But God, by his power, raised his beloved son and in so doing, flipped the script on the evil that was going on and destroyed evil itself. The greatest tragedy in the world became the world's greatest act of love because of the power of God to be able to achieve his purposes. The greatest wrong became the thing that makes his people right. God doesn't just use sin sinlessly. He actually uses perfectly and purposefully. He doesn't just get a, you know, passing grade, he flips it all on itself toward wonder and worship. It looked like the reign of sin had been victorious, and in that moment, it was vanquished by the reign of mercy and love of the beloved son. And now we who are rightly condemned, who are rightly rebels in that world, he invites us and promises to work his purposes in us until the end of days. You know the difference between A Midsummer's Night Dream and Romeo and Juliet? I'm such an English major, sorry. <laughs> Nothing but the ending. 
The difference between a tragedy and a comedy and a Shakespearean play is if everybody's dead at the end or everybody's happy at the end. It's literally the difference between the two. It's too early to tell, but we're promised it won't be one day. So I figured since we started with a little reference to Lord of the Rings, I'd read to you from one of the best endings ever. Sammy says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. The glory of the gospel itself, as proclaimed in 828, is that we will make merriment even amid our tears being wiped away. Let's pray.